All right, we're back. I've been meaning to tell this story for some weeks, and it's just time its time that, that we did it. Uh, when I come here every, every week to do the show, I, I park where I used to live, over at near 2nd. I actually park at 3rd and C Street and walk in. I, I used to live at 2nd and C Street, and, um, and, and I've been recalling. Uh, an episode many years ago when I lived in this little house and I first came across one of my all-time favorite comedies and and situation was this friend of my roommates Steve staying over for a few days we're living in student poverty of course and uh, I sit down on the couch in this teeny little house that, that I lived in and flipped on the old black and white television and I catch what turns out to be the very end of a movie. It's a courtroom scene featuring Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder pleading their case before a judge about some wrongdoing. And of course, Gene Wilder uh, opens up by saying, Max Bialystok is the most selfish, self-serving individual I've ever met in my life, <laughs> prompting the Mostel character to lean over and say in a stage whisper, don't help me. As you may have guessed, this, of course, is nearing the finale to Mel Brooks's 1968 classic, The Producers, which, of course, you probably know is based on the premise that a couple of guys, a couple of con men set out to create, well, actually, let me take a clip from the actual movie that explains how it unfolds. Young Gene Wilder playing Leo Bloom is going over the books. He's an accountant going over the books of the Zero Mostel character, the producer, Max Bialystok. Amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But under the right circumstances, a producer could make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. Hmm. Yes, it's quite possible. If he were certain that the show would fail, a man could make a fortune. Yes? Yes, what? What you were saying, keep talking. What was I saying? You were saying that under the right circumstances, a producer could make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. Yes, it's quite possible. You keep saying that, but you don't tell me how. How can a producer make more money with a flop than he could with a hit? Well, it's simply a matter of creative accounting. Let's assume, just for the moment, that you are a dishonest man. Assume away. It's very easy. You simply raise more money than you really need. What do you mean? Well, you did it yourself, only you did it on a very small scale. What did I do? You raised $2,000 more than you needed to produce your last play. So what? What did it get me? I'm wearing a cardboard belt. Well, that's where you made your mistake. You didn't go all the way. You see, if you were really a bold criminal, you could have raised a million. But the play cost me only $60,000 to produce. And how long did it run? One night. You see? Do you see what I'm trying to tell you? You could have raised a million dollars, put on a $60,000 flop, and kept the rest. But what if the play was a hit? Well, then you'd go to jail. Oh. See, once the play's a hit, you have to pay off all the backers. And with so many backers, there could never be enough profits to go around. Get it? Uh-huh. 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 So in order for this scheme to work, we'd have to find a surefire flop. What scheme? What scheme? Your scheme, you bloody little genius. I meant no scheme. I merely posed a little academic accounting theory. It was just a thought. Bloom, worlds are turned on such thoughts. They set out to make a bad play, but despite their best efforts, and this is where the comedy comes in, 
what turns out to be the world's worst play somehow manages to be a hit, making all plans backfire. As a result, to bring the house down, they literally try to bring the house down by blowing up the theater. In the final scene, we're next to the final scene. <laughs> the excuse they offer to the judge is, well, Your Honor will never do it again. Which is followed by the scene which completely hooked me on this film as follows. Let's put a little life in it. You now own 20% of Prisoners of Love. Congratulations. Yes, sir. You now own 30% of Prisoners of Love. Congratulations. Yes, sir. The uh, warden would like to make a little investment in your production. Uh. Tell him he owns 50% of the show. Thanks. My pleasure. Sing it out, man. We open in Leavenworth on Saturday night. And of course, that's the finale. They are doing it again in prison. The next time the movie was available to me, it was, I think, making an appearance in 194 Chem. I went to see the movie in its entirety, having seen only the last five minutes of it, but think I really need to see it in its entirety. Uh, you know, I think I fell off fell off the seat a co- two or three times into the aisle. It's, it's a funny movie. And it had, by that time, acquired a kind of cult status. It had been out for uh, over a decade and was widely loved, but had never been a financial success. This was Mel Brooks's first film, and uh, it was such a, a failure that he really was thinking about giving up show business, he says. Fortunately for movie comedy, he did not quit after his first effort. It was an unsuccessful film from a financial sense that was a very good movie that was about a bad play that was nevertheless a hit. Fast forward to 2001. The Producers opens on Broadway. It is a smash success. It wins 12 Tonys. It's the hottest ticket in town. It's a smash play that's a financial success about a bad play that's a surprising success, except when I saw the play, I I just hated it. I sort of puzzled by this. It echoes around in my my brain. A classic movie that's a financial failure, and then a hugely successful musical play that is, in my mind, uh, an artistic flop. So uh, to solve this problem, I decided to give a call to uh, one of our our best friends here at at KDVS, Dr. Andy Jones of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, who uh, hopefully can help me resolve this. Dr. Andy, are you there? I'm here, Doug, and happy to talk to you about the producers. Excellent, because as you know, we've talked about this before, I have a certain dilemma in my mind about a movie that I liked, a play that I hated, about a play that's bad, that's a success, that's an unsuccessful movie, but a smashingly successful play. There's just something reverberating here. I can tell you're distressed, Doug. I'm confused and distressed. And and part of it is uh, this play version of the producers a musical uh if i remember correctly you saw it in san francisco and what was it you didn't find the same wit the same humor the same caustic edge that the original 1968 film had i just didn't think it was funny 
I mean, I know all the jokes and love all the jokes in the movie, but somehow this 12 Tony Award-winning play, the jokes just universally fell flat. Right. Well, you might be answering your own question because of how you've continued to elevate the original in your mind. I'm not sure what could compare well to <laughs> the great Mel Brooks classic. I think you have to look at the, the character actors with uh, Zero Mostel as Max Bialystok and, and Gene Wilder making his film debut as Bloom. These were just uh, fantastic, uh, perfectly chosen actors. In fact, Mel Brooks told... Uh, Gene Wilder that he wouldn't have to act at all because he wrote the part just like Gene Wilder's character. <laughs> Wilder was uh, was somewhat offended by this, but uh, mm -hmm. the the late Anne Bancroft said, "Don't worry about it, just work with it," and he did, and uh, and was surprised to, uh, if I remember correctly, be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in this role. Heady stuff for a young man new to film. Absolutely, his his first his first role. But certainly they worked well together. Um, that next year, Gene Wilder had a small part in Bonnie and Clyde, and then uh, Brooks and Wilder together co-wrote Young Frankenstein, which is certainly one of the the best comedies of the second half of the 20th century. You have not seen the play. I haven't. Yeah, yeah. I, I got a feeling that you you might agree with me. It just somehow the jokes are just they're not so good. Brooks is not a, a songwriter. The original was what well, they thought to make a, a, a play out of it, but it only had two songs in it, Springtime for Hitler and Prisoners of Love. Well, in the final version that wins 12 Tonys, there's still only two good songs, Prisoners of Love and Springtime for Hitler, and all the rest is just pretty much dreck. And yet, no one seemed to notice this. Everybody loves this play. I, I don't get it. Well, I don't know. Has there been much to choose from on Broadway for uh, a number of years? I think, uh, again, you have to go back to the actors. People were excited to see big movie stars like Matthew Broderick up there on stage. And Nathan Lane has a great set of lungs. He himself is larger than life. People, I think, were hoping that this might be a, a revival of the sort of uh, great theater that you could see on Broadway in the 1960s when Zero Mostel was making plays like uh, Fiddler on the Roof and Rhinoceros. So uh, a revival, perhaps more in their imaginations than in reality, at least according to your play review. Apparently I do stand alone. Everyone seems to love it. It was this smash of Broadway. You couldn't get tickets. They were scalping them for $500. In fact, there's a story about the, the success of the play. Apparently um, on one of the productions... There's an empty seat that prompted a woman to lean over and ask the man sitting next to it, is this your seat? And he said, yes, it is. My wife was supposed to come, but, but she couldn't make it. And the dumbfounded woman says, you know, this is a very popular show. Couldn't you find a friend or relative to take in your wife's place? The guy said, well, I would have, but they're all at her funeral. Ha! <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Old Broadway joke. Had to shoehorn it in somehow. I like that. Now I've got a question for you, Doug. Yes. Do you have concerns about the 2005 version in coming to movie theaters uh, later this year of the producers, the movie musical, starring not only Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, but also Uma Thurman and, as Franz Liebkind, Will Ferrell? Well, since I... I 
seem to absolutely loathe Will Ferrell, I suspect then what it's going to do is pivot the movie into being uh, a bad movie about a bad play that's a surprise hit and will probably be a financial hit. So you're saying that the movie will be a hit, even though it will be bad. I think it will follow in the like in in the pattern of the play, bad play, financial hit, as opposed to good movie, financial failure. Right. About a bad play that's a surprising hit. Well, I think that uh, we're most thankful to the producers because it launched the careers of Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder and uh, represented a, uh, a, a very nice swan song of sorts for Zero Mostel, who made uh, The Stand with uh, Woody Allen oh, about 10 years after this, but uh, which still represents uh, Zero Mostel's best work on film. And uh, it was also a film that inspired uh, comics like Woody Allen to imagine uh, directing and writing as uh, an opportunity to share uh, their unique brand of humor with a larger audience, which is exactly what Alan did, uh, starting to make his comedies in the years soon after the producers. Well, I'm feeling better about it already, uh, at least uh, the fact that they're going to make another movie about the producers. I guess we'll just have to see, uh, see what happens. And no doubt uh, enterprising television executives will bring back the original so that we can uh, walk down that nostalgic memory lane once again and see the originals on TV and also at our local video store. All right, well, when it comes out, I think that uh, I, I know you will be spearheading a, an effort to take a bunch of folks out and go see it, so I'll, I'll try and join you. I'll make sure you're on the invitation list, Doug. <laughs> Dr. Handy, thanks again. Absolutely, and I'll see you on the radio. All righty. That, of course, was our good friend, Dr. Andy Jones, heard every Wednesdays at 5 o'clock right here on KDVS with Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. All right, then. Well, I, I dislike the play very much. I expect the movie to not be so good, but to all of you, if you have not seen uh, this on video or DVD, please go out and rent or buy yourself a copy, and, and let's uh, Mr. McMillan go out uh, with the finale. Prisoners of Love. Prisoners of love, blue skies above, can't keep our hearts in jail. Prisoners of love, our turtle doves, soon coming round with mail. Oh, you can lock us up and lose I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. And you're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Cause we're still prisoners of love. Or you can lock us up and lose the key. But hearts in love will always be. Prisoners of love.